Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michion Diagnostics. In this series, we will discuss thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Michion Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Brad, take it away. Today, we're going to talk fairly briefly about the role of hypercoagulable testing. This is clearly a fairly complex subject when you start to get into the weeds, and there are lots of places to go to work through all the details. I wanted to give a a fairly quick and dirty overview of when you would and when you clearly would not, mostly would not, think about doing hypercoagulable testing. The first question is, why do you care about hypercoagulability? And that really requires us to take a step back. Now, today, I'm not going to talk about the diagnosis or the treatment of uh, venous thromboembolic disease, but I need to allude to them a little bit because they set the, the base for what we want to think about with hypercoagulability. Patient who comes in and has an unprovoked I mean, it has a clearly provoked clot that is surgery more than 20 minutes or so, pregnancy, now hospitalization. Those patients do not require any hypercoagulable testing. We know why they had their clot. We're really all done. Would I ever consider hypercoagulable testing in that kind of a situation? Probably the simple answer is no, unless the clot was in some way very unusual, the setting perhaps marginal, very brief outpatient surgery or even a more marginal uh, provocation such as a long plane ride or use of estrogens, for example, in those settings, I might consider hypercoagulable testing. But generally, no testing is needed for the provoked clots. The duration is, is three months, and then you're just done. We only are going to worry about those patients who have unprovoked clots. In a patient who has a clearly unprovoked clot, Most of the time, I don't care about hypercoagulability. The reason I say that is that in general, I treat an unprovoked clot with permanent anticoagulation. Why? Because there's data suggesting that the risk of recurrence after you stop, no matter how long they've been on anticoagulation, remains higher than 4 to 5%, which is roughly the cutoff that the ISTH, the International Society of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, would suggest as a rough equivalence to the risk of being on anticoagulation. So you have a patient with an unprovoked clot. Generally, you're not going to do any hypercoagulable testing. What are the situations where you might consider doing hypercoagulable testing? The first issue is a little bit murky. That is, what you would like to know is what an, ind- an individual patient's particular risk of having a recurrent clot after stopping anticoagulation would be. I don't really know how to do this, but there are some some scores beginning to come out that may allow us to think about this. The HERDO2, the H-E-R-D-O-O-2 study, which has now been independently validated, um, as well as some studies looking at uh, D-dimers and or um, persistence of clot after on venous ultrasound. All of those studies purport to predict which subpopulations can or cannot uh, discontinue anticoagulation. The HERDU2 would suggest that if you're a male, you just can't. Um, So it's useful in that way to tell me I don't need to do anything else. I'm all done. This patient stays on anticoagulation. But a woman who's not obese or or elderly and has uh, no signs of post-phlebitic syndrome and uh, has a a normal D-dimer would perhaps be a candidate to consider stopping therapy with only that 3 to 4% risk of recurrent clotting per year, roughly. Would I stop those patients? I don't know. I think at this point, that's still a work in progress. I'm waiting to see 
uh, further validation of the study, but it is something that I would think about. If you would think about it, then you might want to add in hypercoagulable testing. The reason for doing that is that it gives you one more piece of information that might sway you since it's not, this is not going to be a, an entirely clear and entirely strong recommendation. So that if you found that they had some significant hypercoagulable state, and we'll talk in a little bit about what those might be, then you would probably choose not to stop anticoagulation. But again, all provoked clots, they go on short, short term. All unprovoked or most unprovoked are going to go on permanent long-term, and it's not going to make any difference whether I find anything on their hypercoagulable panel or not. I'm still going to treat them just the same and for the, the same permanent duration, except for the, some patients. Firstly, those perhaps who very much want to stop their anticoagulation and in whom one of the predictive scores would suggest that they could stop, you might choose to stop in those patients. It may be worth checking them for underlying hypercoagulability. In patients who have unprovoked clots where for whatever reason you are thinking about stopping their anticoagulation, I would particularly be concerned about looking for underlying hypercoagulability if the patient was young, younger than about 45 or so, or if they have a family history of having clots. Now, I'm in patients who are younger than 45 or so. And that family history is an important predictor of risk of finding an underlying congenital hypercoagulable state. So again, young patients, patients with a strong, with a positive family history, patients who have had warfarin-induced skin necrosis, I check for protein C and protein S. In those patients with atypical clots or very extensive, unexpectedly extensive clots, I don't generally do a hypercoagulable state unless the clot is atypical in a way, as we'll talk about in a moment, that would suggest one of the acquired hypercoagulable states. Lastly, I check everyone for a lupus and every unprovoked clot for a lupus anticoagulant. Why do I do this? Because in a patient with an unprovoked clot who has a lupus anticoagulant, they have a fairly high risk of recurrence if you stop their anticoagulation. And that's useful to me if the patient comes back at some point down the road and for whatever reason wants to go off anticoagulation. They've had it. They're going on a year-long sabbatical to darkest somewhere. I like to have that information in my pocket, so I do check them for for the lupus anticoagulant. In addition, there's some data at this point suggesting that some patients with lupus anticoagulants who, with the lupus anticoagulant may not be good candidates for treatment with the, the DOAX or the NOAX, the novel oral anticoagulants, the direct anti-10A and thrombin inhibitors. Um, if that's true, it would be nice to know that these that these drugs, which are being used so much more commonly, are not appropriate for this given subset of patients. So again, I check everyone for lupus anticoagulant with a traditional lupus anticoagulant panel. That is the lupus anticoagulant itself, which requires several uh, clotting type assays, the anticardiolipid antibodies, which is an ELISA antibody test, and the uh, beta-2 glycoprotein 1, which again is an ELISA. We're looking for antibodies, and I check all patients. I generally like to check them after about a month. In truth, the antibody tests probably not affected by the acuity of the clot nor by anticoagulation. So you really could check them the first time anytime, but I'm going to want to get all three. And then if they're, if any of them are positive, I'm going to want to repeat the testing in about 90 days because there's a very high transient false positive rate that can be obviated by the repeat testing. 
Note that most labs will tell you that the anti-carbulipid antibodies and the beta-2 glycoprotein are positive. Now, when they're greater than about 20, now you may want to talk to your lab because a true positive in most labs is going to be greater than about 40. I mean, that range between 20 and 40 is a bit murky and requires me to have some other reason, reason to believe that this patient has a lupus anticoagulant for me to actually call that a true positive. So, Having said that there is is clearly a subset of patients that we are going to want to screen for hypercoagulability, but it's clearly not everyone. I think in general, many more people are tested than than should be. So then what are we going to do to check people for hypercoagulability? And I want to break this up a little bit. Without being silly, I do want to remind, remind you that the first part of a hypercoagulable workup is a good history and physical, as it is for everything else. You want to look for things on either of those that might suggest an underlying malignancy, that might suggest underlying drug use, or the use of drugs that haven't been mentioned. That you want to talk to them about the possibility of a bleeding history, since that would affect the risk-benefit balance as you think through the duration of their anticoagulation. Um, you want to hear about any other preceding clots, particularly if they're presenting now with a VTE, but have a preceding history of an arterial thrombus of some sort. And then some routine screening laboratory work. Um, and in particular, I would be interested in the CBC, looking for the possibility of cytopenias of any sort that might suggest paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, now, particularly in the setting of, a, of an atypical clot. We'll talk about that in a moment. Or elevated counts, which would suggest a myeloproliferative disorder, such as polycythemia vera, which I might then test for. Having said that, how do we go about thinking through the underlying hypercoagulable states? Let me break the hypercoagulable states up one more time. I want to talk about acquired hypercoagulability and congenital hypercoagulability. That's different than the way most people think about it, I suspect, in that often what they jump to is the congenital hypercoagulability. But let's just a chance, a moment here to remind you about acquired. Now, remember, first of all, the most serious of the acquired hypercoagulable states is having an unprovoked venous thromboembolic event. The patients who have that have a very high risk of having a recurrent clot. That's a significant acquired hypercoagulability. Just as a look into the future, I think you might may find over the near future that we begin considering patients who've had more than one provoked clot as perhaps also having an acquired hypercoagulability due to those two or more provoked clots because there is damage that leaves residual hypercoagulability after a provoked clot. That's not yet my recommendation, but I think keep your eye on the literature I think you may find that coming down the road. We talked about the lupus anticoagulant, which is clearly an acquired hypercoagulability that's important. Remember, again, pregnancy that's still occult is also a hypercoagulable state, as is malignancy. I'm not going to talk today about the guidelines for screening for occult malignancy, but be aware that in patients of an appropriate age without another obvious cause for a clot, particularly if they have recurrent clots or if they have both arterial and venous clots, um, one should think about the possibility of an underlying occult adenocarcinoma or hematologic malignancy, both of which can contribute to hypercoagulability and, and clots prior to the presentation of the malignancy itself. And then, as I alluded to earlier on, um, myeloproliferative diseases that are JAK2 positive, such as polycythemia vera or, or in some cases, essential thrombocythemia. In either of those cases, they can predispose to portal vein and perhaps other mesenteric vein thrombosis. Probably everyone with a portal vein thrombosis should be screened with a JAK2, noting that not only are 20 to 30% positive in that, in that setting when there's no other cause for the portal vein thrombosis, but 
20 to 30 percent of those patients will be JAK2 positive with a normal CBC. So it's not enough to simply screen with that CBC that I'd mentioned earlier on. And then secondarily, and much less commonly, but paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria and acquired hemolytic anemia, which is seen in the setting typically of a T-cell-mediated autoimmune marrow dysfunction, such as a plastic anemia. But PNH also contributes to both venous and arterial thrombosis. And among patients, for example, with portal vein thrombosis, you may find PNH in up to 3 to 5%. So again, it's something to think about in that setting. And the more unusual the clot becomes, the more I would think about screening quickly for PNH, which is a fairly straightforward, relatively inexpensive flow cytometry, not done here at Machan Diagnostics, by the way. But I would think about that. And I would think even more seriously, if there's any underlying preceding or preceding cytopenias of any sort. Although note that you don't have to have significant cytopenia with PNH to be hypercoagulable, but the vast majority of the time, you'll have both a mild anemia in hypercoagulable patients and typically an elevated LDH. So again, those are the acquired dates, and they should be looked at when the situation is appropriate for looking for those. As we mentioned earlier, just to say it one more time, most patients do not require a congenital hypercoagulability workup. These these diseases are relatively uncommon in the heterozygous state in the case of factor V Leiden and the prothrombin gene. The, the impact on uh, recurrence is low enough that they really don't enter into our decision making, even although homozygous, uh, the much less common homozygous uh, states of those two genes would have some impact if you were on the fence and were considering stopping anticoagulation. Again, if you decided because a patient comes in with a fairly substantial PE and they tolerate their anticoagulation well and their risk of bleeding is relatively small and they are going to go on permanent anticoagulation, hypercoagulable testing is not going to change any of that. It's only when you are considering the possibility or have already considered or have already decided to discontinue anticoagulation in a patient with a previously unprovoked clot, then you may want to think about congenital hypercoagulable testing. If you're going to think about it, you would want to think about the factor V gene mutation, the so-called factor V Leiden. Um, In many places, that'll be screened for initially with a clotting type test uh, with the activated protein C resistance. I mentioned that because if that's going to be done, you need to check with your lab to see whether they're using a, a set of reagents that would be interfered with by anticoagulation, in particular by the uh, NOACs or DOACs. Um, and the alternative is to do the genetic test, which is quick, easy, and not interfered with by anticoagulation nor by uh, the, the presence of a recent clot. The prothrombin gene, or prothrombin port, is it sometimes called, prothrombin 2210. Similarly, it matters primarily when it's homozygous, and it also matters when you have compound heterozygosity. That is, you have both the factor V Leiden heterozygote and the prothrombin gene abnormality in a heterozygous state, those two simultaneously also carry an increased risk of of thrombosis and may matter. Protein C and S, in general, the protein C should simply be a protein C activity, not the antigen. You want to know, does this protein work or does it not work? And there are congenital dysfunctions that don't affect the antigen. Protein S is best tested for using the free protein S assay. Um, If for some reason you can't get that, protein S activity is a second choice. And then antithrombin activity would be another one you want to check. I would not check for, for homocysteine. There's no value in knowing whether it's there or not. There is some hyperhomocysteinemia commonly associated with a number of hypercoagulable states, but 
it doesn't give me any information that's useful in deciding what to do next. Treating it to make it go away doesn't decrease, decrease the risk of recurrence, and knowing that it's there doesn't have enough impact on the risk of recurrence to change my thinking about how I'm going to deal with this. So those five tests I mentioned earlier, the factor five gene, the prothrombin gene, protein C, protein S, and antithrombin is a pretty good basic set of tests to look for for congenital hypercoagulability. Some quibbling over whether elevated factor eight may be of value. Now one could say if I suppose that uh, the congenital disorder of maleness is also an increased risk factor for recurrence of clots, but most of us don't die require genetic testing to sort that out. That's really about it for congenital testing. Just to say it uh, in passing, I think you're going to find down the road that we begin to move into doing next-gen gene sequencing for hypercoagulability in much the same way we are for so many other things now. Um, There's talk that there may be genetic predictors for the likelihood of recurrent pulmonary emboli in particular, and perhaps of thrombosis related pulmonary hypertension. Post-lobitic syndrome may also be predictable genetically. And there have been a couple of studies now suggesting that certain genetic traits may suggest an increased risk of having venous thromboembolic disease in the setting of cancer therapy. And you may find us doing that at, at some point in the near future. And then lastly, I think it's possible you'll see us doing genetic panels in some patients to assess their bleeding risk as a way of predicting the relative risk of continuing anticoagulation in these patients. None of those genetic possibilities that I just mentioned are ready for prime time at this point. I am not suggesting it, but know that those are things that are probably coming down the pike. And with that, just to sum it all up, congenital hypercoagulability is one of the most common issues for me to be receive calls about. And really, it's fairly simple. If it was a provoked clot, don't worry about it. If it was an unprovoked clot in a patient who tolerates anticoagulation and they're going to stay on permanent anticoagulation, you're all done. You don't need to do any testing. If you're considering stopping, that's a situation where you might want to do testing. One of the situations where you would consider genetic testing of a patient who is going to continue on anticoagulation, someone with an unprovoked clot who's young, has a positive family history, for example, and in whom you are suspicious that they might have a hypercoagulable state, now you might consider testing if they have family members who would benefit from this. This is still, I think, a very murky area, but if you found a significant hypercoagulable state in a patient who has young female relatives, for example, it might affect their decisions about using oral contraceptives, although one could argue that just knowing you have someone in your family who had an unprovoked clot may be enough to dissuade you from using oral contraceptives. If they have antithrombin deficiency, they might very well receive uh, prophylaxis during pregnancy, even though they've not yet had a clot themselves. And uh, lastly, patients who are found to have asymptomatic hypercoagulable states, although they themselves should not generally be treated, they would probably be more likely to receive the prophylaxis that they probably should receive anyways at times of surgery or immobility, such as with uh, medical illness. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Michian Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening, and if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like discussed, please send an email to blood, sweat, and smears at michiandiagnostics.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at michiandx. Be sure to subscribe, share, and join us next time for more coagulation information.